today's read aloud. Um, today we have David Debin and Karen Simonian. David is from the History Department and Karen is with the Wexner Center. And they're reading Julia and Joyce. I forgot the rest of it. Two 50s outsiders. Okay, so I will turn it over to them. Well, this is a dual event, but the concept uh, makes sense in that the two books deal are both memoirs of people who were who didn't do the conventional 50s thing during the era of Ike and Mamie Eisenhower. In other words, they didn't move to the suburbs, live the life that you might see uh, in on Leave it to Beaver, for example. And the I'm dealing with Julia Child, whom I'm, I suspect everyone in this room knows about and knows about even more now that there's this movie, Julia and Julia, which some of you may have seen. Um, the, the catalyst for my interest in this book, I don't read a lot of books for pure pleasure anymore because if you're an historian, there's too much to read. But every so often I succumb to the temptation. And uh, you really know it's tempting when I actually buy a new hardback book, which my spouse will assure you I almost never do. So I almost never buy a new paperback book anymore. But Julia Child was interesting to me because she was, in her, own, in her own way, a revolutionary. She helped make a big change, and a kind of unlikely revolutionary in a lot of different ways. So when her memoir appeared, I thought, well, I should look at that. So I went to the bookstore and looked at it and was seduced by how well-written it was from the first page. So, uh, so I bought it when it came out in 2006. It's now on the bestseller list again, and maybe higher up because of the movie. And it's the classic example. The movie is good. We saw the movie together. We liked the movie. The book is better. Read the book. So I say this not to please the librarian sitting in front of me, but because it's true. Um, and so I have a few excerpts I would like to read from this memoir entitled My Life in France, published in 2006, two years after she died, and three years or so before the movie came out. Um, okay. So the first excerpt takes place they are just, they have just arrived, Julia Child and her husband Paul, in France. It's November 3rd, 1948. He works for the State Department. He does exhibits. He puts them together. And he's got the, one of the best exhibitor jobs in the world at the U.S. Embassy in Paris. And she is coming along in true sort of 50s era fashion as the spouse. She has no official job. She's had French in school but can't speak a word of it. She's never been to France before, etc. She describes herself earlier in the book as a rather loud, unserious 36-year-old Californian, six foot two. And perhaps crucially, she knows nothing about cooking. All right, so here's, here we are. They get off the boat at 5 a.m. They clear customs by 7 a.m. They claim their small blue station wagon, nicknamed the Flash. And then they drive to Rouen. And so here we go. At 12.30, we flashed, the car turning into a verb, into Rouen. We passed the city's ancient and beautiful clock tower and then its famous cathedral, still pockmarked from battle, but magnificent with its stained glass windows. We rolled to a stop in La Place de Vieux Marché, the square where Joan of Arc met, fire <coughs> met her fiery fate, and there the Michelin Guide directed us to Restaurant La Couronne, the crown which had been built in 1345 in a medieval quarter-timbered house. 
Paul strode ahead, full of anticipation, but I hung back, concerned that I didn't look chic enough, that I wouldn't be able to communicate, and that the waiters would look down their long Gallic noses at us Yankee tourists. It was warm inside, and the dining room was a comfortably old-fashioned brown and white space, neither humble nor luxurious. At the far end was an enormous fireplace with a rotary spit on which something was cooking that sent out heavenly aromas. We were greeted by the maitre d'hôtel, a slim middle-aged man with dark hair. He carried himself with an air of gentle seriousness. Paul spoke to him, and the maitre d' smiled and said something back in a familiar way, as if they were old friends. Then he led us to a nice table not far from the fireplace. The other customers were all French, and I noticed that they were treated with exactly the same courtesy as we were. Nobody rolled their eyes at us or stuck their nose in the air. Actually, the staff seemed happy to see us. As we sat down, I heard two businessmen in gray suits at the next table asking questions of their waiter, an older, dignified man who gesticulated with a menu and answered them at length. What are they talking about? I whispered to Paul. The waiter is telling them about the chicken they ordered, he whispered back, how it was raised, how it will be cooked, what side dishes they can have with it, and which wines would go with it best. Wine, I said, at lunch? I had never drunk much wine other than some $1.19 California Burgundy, and certainly not in the middle of the day. In France, Paul explained, good cooking was regarded as a combination of national sport and high art that wine was always served with lunch and dinner. The trick is moderation, he said. Suddenly the dining room filled with wonderfully intermixing aromas that I sort of recognized but couldn't name. The first smell was something oniony, shallots, Paul identified it, being sautéed in fresh butter. What's a shallot? I asked sheepishly. You'll see, he said. Then came a warm and whiny fragrance from the kitchen which was probably a delicious sauce being reduced on the stove. This was followed by a whiff of something astringent, the salad being tossed in a big ceramic bowl with lemon, wine vinegar, olive oil, and a few shakes of salt and pepper. My stomach gurgled with hunger. I couldn't help noticing that the waiters carried themselves with a quiet joy, as if their entire mission in life was to make their customers feel comfortable and well-tended. One of them glided up to my elbow. Glancing at the menu, Paul asked him questions in rapid-fire French. The waiter seemed to enjoy the back and forth with my husband. Oh, how I itched to be in on their conversation. Instead, I smiled and nodded uncomprehendingly, although I tried to absorb all that was going on around me. We began our lunch with a half-dozen oysters on the half-shell. I was used to bland oysters from Washington and Massachusetts, which I had never much cared for. But this platter of Portuguese had a sensational briny flavor and a smooth texture that was entirely new and surprising. The oysters were served with rounds of pan de seigle, a pale rye bread with a spread of unsalted butter. Paul explained that as with the wine, the French have crews of butter, special regions that produce individually flavored butters. Beur de Charente is a full-bodied butter, usually recommended for pastry dough or general cooking. Beur de Signy is a fine, light table butter. It was the delicious Isigny that we spread on our rounds of rye. 
Rouen is famous for its duck dishes. But after consulting the waiter, Paul decided to order sole meunier. It arrived whole, a large, flat Dover sole that was perfectly browned in a sputtering butter sauce with a sprinkling of chopped parsley on top. The waiter carefully placed the platter in front of us, stepped back and said, Bon appétit. I closed my eyes and inhaled the rising perfume. Then I lifted a forkful of fish to my mouth, took a bite, and chewed slowly. The flesh of the sole was delicate, with a light but distinct taste of the ocean that blended marvelously with the brown butter. I chewed slowly and swallowed. It was a morsel of perfection. In Pasadena, where she grew up, we used to have broiled mackerel for Friday dinners, codfish balls with egg sauce, poached salmon on the 4th of July, and the occasional pan-fried <clears throat> trout when camping in the Sierras. But at La Couronne, I experienced fish and a dining experience of a higher order than any I'd ever had before. Along with our meal, we happily downed a whole bottle of Pouilly Fumé, a wonderful crisp white wine from the Loire Valley. Another revelation. Then came Salade Verte, laced with a lightly acidic vinaigrette, and I tasted my first real baguette, a crisp brown crust giving way to a slightly chewy, rather loosely textured pale yellow interior, with a faint reminder of wheat and yeast in the odor and taste. Yum. We followed our meal with a leisurely dessert of fromage blanc and ended with a strong, dark café filtre. The waiter placed before us a cup topped with a metal canister, which contained coffee grounds and boiling water. With some urging by us impatient drinkers, the water eventually filtered down into the cup below. It was fun, and it provided a distinctive dark brew. Paul paid the bill and chatted with the maitre d', telling him how much he looked forward to going to back to Paris for the first time in 18 years. The maitre d' smiled as he scribbled something on the back of a card. Tiens, he said, handing it to me. The Durin family, who owned La Couronne, also owned a restaurant in Paris called La Tuite, which he explained while Paul translated. On the card, he had scribbled a note of introduction for us. Merci, monsieur, I said with a flash of courage and an accent that sounded bad even to me. The, nader, the waiter nodded as if it were nothing and moved off to greet some new customers. Paul and I floated out the door into the brilliant sunshine and cool air. Our first lunch together in, in France had been absolute perfection. It was the most exciting meal of my life. Not bad. All right. Here's another excerpt, which again gives you some of the flavor of the time. On November 5th, they're in Paris now, on November 5th, a banner headline in the International Herald Tribune proclaimed that Harry S. Truman had been elected president defeating Thomas Dewey at the 11th hour. Paul and I, devoted Democrats, were exultant. My father, Big John McWilliams, a staunchly conservative Republican, was horrified. And one side note here that she doesn't mention, they were, Paul was a Democratic administration appointee. If Dewey had won, they would probably have had to go home. And there would be no Julia Child, I suspect. So... Even if you're not a Truman fan, this is a pop positive consequence of Truman's election. Pop was a wonderful man on many accounts. 
But our different worldviews were a source of tension that made family visits uncomfortable for me and miserable for Paul. My mother, Caro, who had died from the effects of high blood pressure, and now my stepmother, Philadelphia McWilliams, known as Phyla, were apolitical, but went along with whatever Pop said for the sake of domestic harmony. My brother John, the middle sibling, was a mild Republican. My younger sister Dorothy stood to the left of me. My father was pained by his daughter's liberal leanings. He had assumed I would marry a Republican banker, settle down in Pasadena and lead a conventional life. But if I'd done that, I'd probably have turned into an alcoholic, as a number of my friends had. Instead, I had married Paul Child, a painter, photographer, poet, and mid-level diplomat who had taken me to live in dirty, dreaded France. I couldn't have been happier. Reading about Truman's election victory, I imagined the doom and gloom around Pasadena. It must have seemed like the end of life as Big John knew it. Eh bien, tant pis, as we Parisians like to say. Now we fast forward to August 15, 1949. It's that seven and a half months later, almost eight months later. On August 15, 1949, I turned 37 years old. Paul bought me La Russe Gastronomique, a wonder book of 1,087 pages of sheer cookery and foodery with thousands of drawings, 16 color plates, all sorts of definitions, recipes, information, stories, and gastronomical know-how. I devoured its pages. By By now I knew that French food was it for me. I couldn't get over how absolutely delicious it was. Yet my friends, both French and American, considered me some kind of a nut. Cooking was far from being a middle-class hobby, and they did not understand how I could possibly enjoy doing all the shopping and the cooking and the serving by myself. Well, I did, and Paul encouraged me to ignore them and to pursue my passion. I had been cooking in earnest at Rue de Lou, which is the nickname they gave their apartment, but something was missing. It was no longer enough for me to salivate over recipes in La Russe Gastronomique or chat with the neighbor or sample my way through the menus of wonderful restaurants. I wanted to roll up my sleeves and dive into French cuisine. But how? Out of curiosity, I dropped by L'Ecole du Cordon Bleu, Paris's famous cooking school. There, professional chefs taught traditional French cooking to serious students from all over the world. After attending a demonstration one afternoon, I was hooked. The next class began in October. I signed myself up for a six-week intensive course, smacked my lips in anticipation, and waited for the great day. And as an historian, one of the things I love about this book, she must have kept a diary. Her precision with dates and times is fabulous. So here we go. Her first cooking lesson at 9 a.m., on Tuesday, October 4, 1949, I arrived at the École du Cordon Bleu, feeling weak in the knees, snozzling from a cold. It was then that I discovered that I'd signed up for a year-long année scolaire instead of a six-week intensive course. The N.A. cost $450, which was a serious commitment. It would be something like $5,000 today. But after much discussion, Paul and I agreed that the course was essential to my well-being and that I'd plunge ahead with it. My first cooking class was held in a sunny kitchen on the building's top floor. My classmates were an English girl and a French girl 
of about my age. There's a 50s bit. Everyone following that? I'll say it again. An English girl and an American girl of about my age. She's a girl at 37. Neither of whom had done any cooking at all. To my great surprise, I discovered that many French women didn't know how to cook any better than I did. Quite a lot of them had no interest in the subject whatsoever, though most were expert at eating in restaurants. This housewife course was so elementary that after two days I knew it wasn't what I had in mind at all. I sat down with Madame Elizabeth Brassard, the school's short, thin, rather disagreeable owner, parentheses, she had taken over from Martha Distel, who had run the school for 50 years, close quotes, and explained that I'd had a more rigorous program in mind. We discussed my level of cooking knowledge, her classes on haute cuisine, which was high-end professional cooking, and moyenne cuisine, middle brown cooking. She made it quite clear that she didn't like me or any Americans. Quote, they can't cook, she said, as if I weren't sitting right in front of her. In any event, Madame Brassard decreed that I was not advanced enough for haute cuisine, a six-week course for experts, but that I'd be suitable for the year-long professional restaurateurs course that I conveniently had just begun. This class was taught by Chef Max Bunyard, a pro practicing professional with years of experience. We, I said, without a moment's hesitation. It turned out that the restaurateurs class was made up of 11 former GIs, that's American GIs, who were studying cooking under the auspices of the GI Bill of Rights. I never knew if Madame Brassard had placed me with them as a form of hazing, or merely because she was trying to squeeze out a few more dollars. But when I walked into the classroom, the GIs made me feel as if I had invaded their boys' club. Luckily, I had spent most of the war in male-dominated environments and wasn't phased by them in the least. The 11 GIs were very GI indeed, like genre movie types. Nice, earnest, tough, basic men. Most of them had worked as army cooks during the war, or at hot dog stands in the States, or they had fathers who were bakers and bushers. <clears throat> they seemed serious about learning to cook, but in a trade school kind of way. They were full of entrepreneurial ideas about setting up golf driving ranges with restaurants attached, or roadhouses, or some kind of private trade in a nice spot back home. After a few days in the kitchen together, we became a jolly crew, though in my cold-eyed view, there wasn't an artist in the bunch. And in contrast to the housewife's sun-splashed classroom upstairs, the restaurateur's class met in Cordon Bleu's basement. The kitchen was medium-sized and equipped with two long cutting tables, three stoves with four burners each, six small electric ovens at one end, and an ice box at the other end. With 12 pupils and a teacher, it was hot and crowded down there. The saving grace was our professor, Chef Bunyard. What a gem. Medium small and plump, with thick round frame glasses and a walrus-like mustache, Bunyard was in his late 70s. He had been dans le métier in the field most of his life, starting as a boy at his family's restaurant in the countryside, he had done stages at various good restaurants in Paris, worked in the galleys of transatlantic steamers, and refined his technique under the great Escoffier in London for three years. Before the Second World War, he owned a restaurant, Le Petit Vatel in Brussels. The war cost him Le Petit Vatel, but he had been recruited to Cordon Bleu by Madame Brassard and obviously loved his role as Eminence Grise there. <clears throat> 
and who wouldn't? The job allowed him to keep regular hours and spend his days teaching students who relished his every word and gesture. Despite being overstretched, Bunyard was infinitely kind, a, a natural if understated showman, and he was tireless in his explanations. He drilled us in his careful standards of doing everything, quote, the right way. He broke down the steps of a recipe and made them simple. And there's another key sentence for the historian. I'll read it again. He broke down the steps of a recipe and made them simple. And that's what she did in mastering the art of French cooking for American readers. She decoded French recipes. So, But for this person, one suspects there would also have been no Julia Child as we know her. And he did so with a quiet authority, insisting that we thoroughly analyze texture and flavor. But how does it taste, Madame Shield? One morning he asked, who will make the oeufs bouillet today? The GIs were silent, so I volunteered. They teach you in the army never volunteer for anything, right? She wasn't in the army. So I volunteered for scrambled egg duty. Bunyard watched intently as I whipped some eggs and cream into a froth got the frying pan very hot, and slipped in a pat of butter, which hissed and browned in the pan. No, he said in horror, before I could pour the egg mixture into the pan. That is absolutely wrong. <laughs> the GI's eyes went wide. With a smile, Chef Bouignard cracked two eggs and added a dash of salt and pepper. Like this, he said gently, blending the yolks and whites together with a fork. Not too much. He smeared the bottom and the sides of a frying pan with butter, then gently poured the eggs in. Keeping the heat low, he stared intently at the pan. Nothing happened. After a long three minutes, the eggs began to thicken into a custard. Stirring rapidly with the fork, sliding the pan on and off the burner, Bunyard gently pulled the eggs curds together. Keep them a bit, little bit loose. This is very important, he instructed. Now, the cream or butter, he said, looking at me with raised eyebrows. This will stop the cooking, you see? I nodded, and he turned the scrambled eggs out onto a plate, sprinkled a bit of parsley around, and said, voila. His eggs were always perfect. And although he must have made this dish several thousand times, he always took great pride and pleasure in this performance. Bunyard insisted that one pay attention, learn the correct technique, and that one enjoy one's cooking. Yes, Madame Shield, fun, he would say, joy. It was a remarkable lesson. No dish, not even the humble scrambled eggs, was too much for him. You never forget a beautiful thing that you have made, he said. Even after you eat it, it stays with you always. So that's a pretty good teacher if you're going to learn how to cook. But one of the things I'd like to say extemporaneously about Paul Child is that not only did he encourage her to do the book, but when they approached her to do television in 1963, and this is when she entered my life, because she was on in the late 60s when I was a little kid. Uh, she was, shall we say, not a natural for television. She was not, she's a shy person and so on. So he, by virtue of having done work in public relations and exhibits, was basically the producer of the show. And the first time they taped the pilot, I guess you'd call it in Hollywood, the first episode, she um, 
she just did her work as though the camera wasn't there. And the response from the TV folks was, this can't go on the air. And so he coached her in how to be sufficiently theatrical and dramatic to make her a success on TV. And so it's a very 50 story. They were married for over half a century. In other words, they got married, they stayed married. It was a very positive combination. And actually, I don't seem to have anything else marked, so I'll turn it over to you. Let's just trade pure. All right, from, from Rouen and Paris to Manhattan. Thank you. Circa about the same time. Um, I'm going to be reading from Joyce Johnson's Minor Characters, a beat memoir. Um, Joyce Johnson, uh, maiden name was Joyce Glassman. At the time, she was Joyce Glassman. She's uh, a wonderful writer. Uh, this book actually won a National Book Critics Circle Award. Um, well, she, so she was one of the beat women. You don't often hear about the beat women. Um, not many memoirs by beat women writers. Um, she was also, um, she could claim to be the only beat woman writer who lived with Jack Kerouac um, on and off. And um, in fact, she went on to write um, novels and as well as some nonfiction and just in recent years has published a book of the correspondence between, between her and Kerouac. Um, just a little background. She was born in 1935, um, grew up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, um, raised by a, a set of square, rather square 50s era parents um, who sort of scrimped and saved to send her to, send her to Barnard. Uh, she met Jack Kerouac in 1957. I'll be reading you that excerpt. Um, she was 21 at the time, and he was 34. Uh, and just note, um, that was nine months before Kerouac had published On the Road. Um, and, but it was after she had begun her first novel, so she was already, already writing. And um, so I'll go ahead and, and dive right in. <coughs> This is just a small excerpt first from her introduction to the book that she wrote in 1994. The book was published in 83. Repression breeds intensity. For me, the late 50s had a special intensity that has never been equaled since. The beat movement lasted five years and caused many young men to go on the road in emulation of Jack Kerouac. Young women found the pursuit of freedom much more complicated. Nonetheless, it was my revolution. I didn't go anywhere. I just left the New York neighborhood where I'd grown up and moved much farther downtown. I ended up accidentally with Kerouac in the center of the action, yet always felt myself on the periphery. I was much more of an observer than I wanted to be. I didn't take notes, but I did keep telling myself, remember this. The mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. It was my father I thought of immediately when I first read that line of Thoreau's in English class at Barnard. I thought of my mother, too. I thought that personally I would rather die than be like the mass of men. But adolescents think in such extremes, in such stark choices. Up until the time I was 13, I had taken it for granted that the three of us were happy. I based this belief on the notion of love as something that was all-justifying. True, we didn't have as much money as other people, but at least we all loved each other, like the March family and Little Women. My mother seemed an artist whose medium was thrift. 
With apparent zest, she combed department stores for bargains, toured the local supermarkets seeking out specials. She was an expert in the comparative brands, prices of brands of tomato juice. Garments made of remnants of good fabric. She never bought any cloth that wasn't fine. Issued from her sewing machine. All my sweaters were hand-knitted. In her creations, I was much more formally, thus, quote, better dressed than other girls. I didn't look, quote, cheap like they looked in their store-bought garments. I wanted to, though. Secretly, I wanted to. She kept house all those years, she told me only recently, on $20 a week. All through the post-war boom and even into the affluent 50s, she managed to make everything come out of that. More and more, the effort consumed her energy, her intellect. She hardly ever touched the piano herself except to dust it. We existed in a kind of cultural loneliness that I began to feel as acutely as I grew older and more conscious. It was as if my mother had taken upon herself the power to stop time, freeze us into a Victor Herbert operetta in which the furnishings and music were vaguely classical, the values sentimental, post-Victorian. She was the severe arbiter of everything new that came into the house, ideas, articles of fashion, the friends I occasionally brought home from school. She found very little that met her standards. We were on some higher sphere than the brassy world outside us, with its shiny and permanent items that we couldn't afford. I was to be guarded from the contaminations of everything popular. Chewing gum, soda pop, comic books, the Bobsy Twins, Frank Sinatra. He's dissonant, my mother would say anxiously, switching on the Schubert on WQXR. My specialness was defined not only by the exquisitely sewn dresses I wore, but by her overwhelming expectations of what I would achieve as a child prodigy in music. I knew my enormous values somehow flowed from her. Without that flow, I'd be an empty vessel, a cheap, trivial item, just a very ordinary person, perhaps. <coughs> it's the spring of 1949, and I'm 13 and a half. With my best friend Maria, I am sitting on the, in the very front seat of the top deck of a double-decker bus as it makes its way down Lower Fifth Avenue toward Greenwich Village, which I've, I've been assured is the very last stop, thus impossible to miss. So obviously she's going from the Upper West Side down to the village. Um, she's a, a very a young teenager. Suddenly we see it, the famous arch that's supposed to be the entrance to Washington Square and to lots of other things, perhaps a life of romance and adventure, that I've heard about from four other older, very knowledgeable Trotskyite girls whom I've met in the basement of Hunter College High School, juniors who disdain the bourgeois cafeteria upstairs. They lunch secretly on yogurt deep <laughs> on yogurt deep in the locker room. They carry bags of knitting under which there are copies of the militant, which they hawk around 14th Street nearly every day after school. They have Trotskyite boyfriends, whom they make sweaters and argyle socks for, and endlessly discuss. They never quite explain to me what Trotskyite is, but it seems that if you are one, you're headed for trouble. <laughs> Not only with the fascists, but with detestable teenage Stalinists who've been known to harass sellers of the militant and even beat them up. I admire the daring of these girls tremendously. Their whole style, in fact. Dark clothes and long earrings, the cigarettes they smoke illicitly, the many cups of coffee they say they are required to keep them going. Friendly as they are, however, they never invite me on their rounds. With Olympian disinterest, they delineate a territory that it's up to me to explore for myself. As the bus lurches under the arch, Maria and I are leaning all the way forward in our seats, clutching hands. It's that moment when fantasy and expectation collide with reality, when what you've been told exists really turns out to be there. Not quite as you pictured it, but close enough. Here's the arch, as described by the Trotskyite girls. And there's the fountain, the circle in the square where, according to them, people gather every Sunday to sing folk songs. I'd imagined hordes of people, a whole guitar and banjo strumming population, 
their music ringing through the park, but hadn't trusted the glamour of that picture in my mind. I thought we mightn't find anyone at all. Actually, today there are about six of them. A few young men in old army jackets, a tall blonde girl in faded jeans, a man in a wheelchair. They look a little drab, in fact, perhaps because it's also begun to rain. The drops fall on Maria and me as we rush over to them from the bus. Washington Square is emptying fast. When you know it, we've arrived just too late. In another moment, they'll be packing up their instruments. They stand their ground, however. The men turn up the collars of their jackets. As their audience vanishes, they launch into a new and appropriate song, Let the Circle Be Unbroken, which they sing as loudly as possible into the wind that thins out their voices, disperses them like so much smoke. The rain rattles down harder. I wouldn't move out of it for anything. I've fallen in love with them all. (laughs) It's as though a longing I've carried inside myself has suddenly crystallized, to be lonely within a camaraderie of loneliness. I watch them intently, especially the blonde girl, as if I could wish myself into her. She can't be that much older than I am, maybe 16, and yet she's been accepted by these grown-up-looking men. She has glasses and long, pale, stringy hair and a skinny body hidden inside a man's shirt, several sizes too big for her, that's torn at one shoulder. My mother would never let me out in anything that was torn. You'd think she was beautiful the way she acts, and maybe she is. The more I watch her, the more I come to believe it. She's shivering and laughing in the rain, twisting her hair into rope like wash, wash, she's wringing out. One of the men holds open his jacket, and she ducks into the shelter of it, standing pressed against his side in a warmth I can only imagine with despair. Even now, I only look 11. That's my curse. My outside doesn't reflect my inside, so no one knows who I really am. The rain is getting serious. The sky is definitely black. Calling it a day, the young, man, the young men snap their guitars into cases. Maria just walks up to one of them. Where are you going now, she says to him. Are you going to sing somewhere else? If it were left to me, I couldn't have gotten out one word. He looks at her and smiles at this dark, eager, rather exotic, willowy kid. Are you going to come back next Sunday, she asks. My friend and I are learning the guitar. Is that so, he says. Maybe next time you'll bring yours. But we don't play very well yet, she said. This young man's still smiling at Maria in the most extraordinary friend, extraordinarily friendly way. Why don't you come along and have some coffee? We're all going to the art center, which turns out to be a, um, kind of a greasy spoon. <laughs> Your friend can come too, he says. That's how easy it was. All right, fast forward. Um, Joyce, um, again, Joyce Glassman at the time, um, is fixed up on essentially a blind date by Allen Ginsberg with Jack Kerouac, and she meets him at a Howard Johnson in the village. Um, but first, they have a phone conversation. It goes like this. Hello, I'm Jack. Alan tells me you're very nice. Would you like to come down to Howard Johnson's on 8th Street? I'll be sitting at the counter. I have black hair, and I'll be wearing a red and black check shirt. I'm standing in Elise's kitchen, her friend and another beat woman, Elise Cowan, holding the phone Alan has just handed me. It's a Saturday night shortly after New Year's. Sure, I say. I put on a lot of eyeshadow in my coat and take the subway down to Astor Place and begin walking westward, across town, passing under the bridge between two buildings of Wanamaker's department store. It's a dark, bitter January night with ice all over the pavement, so you have to be careful. But I'm flying along. It's, It's an adventure as opposed to a misadventure under which category so far I've had to put most of the risky occurrences in my life. The windows of Howard Johnson's are running with steam so you can't see in. I push open the heavy glass door, and there is, sure enough, a black-haired man at the counter. 
in a flannel lumberjack shirt, slightly the worse for wear. He looks up and stares at me hard with blue eyes, amazingly blue, and the skin of his face is so brown. He's the only person in Howard Johnson's in color. I feel a little scared as I walk up to him. Jack, I say. There's an empty stool next to his. I just sit down and he asks me whether I want anything. Just coffee. He's awfully quiet. We both lack conversation, but then we don't know each other, so what can I say? He asks after Alan, Lafcadio, that kind of thing. I'd like to tell him I've read his book. He had published The Town in the City, or The Town in the City, um, by then. Um, if that wouldn't sound gauche, obvious, and uncool. <laughs> when the coffee arrives, Jack looks glum. He can't pay for it. He has no money, none at all. So obviously this is before he's famous. <laughs> okay. That morning, he'd handed his last $10 to a cashier in a grocery store and received change for a five. He's waiting for a check from a publisher, he says angrily. I say, look, that's okay. I have money. Do you want me to buy, any, to buy you something to eat? <laughs> yeah, he says, Frankfurters. I'll pay you back. I always pay people back, you know. I've never bought a man dinner before. It makes me feel very competent and womanly. He has Frankfurters home fries and baked beans with Heinz ketchup on them. <laughs> kind of a far cry from Julia Child. <laughs> I keep stealing looks at him because he's beautiful. You're not supposed to say a man is beautiful, but he is. He catches me at it and grins, then mugs it up, putting on one goofy face after another. A whole succession of old-time, ridiculous movie comedian faces flashes before me until I'm laughing, too, at the absurdity of this blind date Alan has arranged. As for what he saw in me that night, I'm not sure at all. A very young woman in a red coat, round-faced and blonde. An interesting young person, he wrote in Desolation Angels, one of his later books, of course. A Jewess, elegant, middle-class, sad, and looking for something. She looked Polish as hell. Where am I in all those funny categories? As our paths converge in Howard Johnson's, we're looking for different things. At 34, Jack's worn down. The energy that had moved him to so many different places gone. He's suddenly waited too long. The check for the subterraneans will never arrive. On the road will never be published. Why not let, let Alan rescue him? I see the blue, bruised eye of Kerouac and construe his melancholy as the look of a man needing love because I'm, among other things, 21 years old. I believe in the curative powers of love as the English believe in tea or Catholics believe in the miracle of Lord. Um, let's see. Okay. <clears throat> he tells me he spent 63 days on a mountaintop without anyone. He made pea soup and wrote in his journal and sang Sinatra songs to keep himself company. Some warning to me in all of this. <laughs> you really liked being alone like that, I ask? I wish I was there now, he said. I should have stayed up there. He could somehow cancel you out and make you feel sad for him at the same time, but I'm sure any mountaintop would be preferable to where he's staying, the Marlton Hotel on 8th Street with the dirty shades over the windows and the winos lounging on the steps. And where do you live, Jack, Jack asks. He likes it that up near Columbia, that it's up near Columbia and the West End Bar where he used to hang out. Was Johnny the bartender still there? Johnny the, bart uh, Johnny the bartender would remember him from the days he was a football hero at Columbia, but he broke his leg his sophomore year and stayed in his room reading Celine and Shakespeare and never went back to football again, thus losing his scholarship at Columbia. But he's always had affection for the neighborhood. Why don't you let me stay at your place, he asks. If you wish, I say, 
in Desolation Angels, Deciding Fast, and I know how I said it too, as if it was no of no great moment, as if I had no wishes of my own, in keeping with my current philosophy of nothing to lose, try anything. We stood up and put on our coats, went down into the subway, and there on the IRT, on a signboard I had never seen before that night, was an ad for an airline with a brand new slogan, Fly Now, Pay Later. That's a good title for a novel, I said, and finally told Jack I was writing one. I wasn't just a secretary. He said, pay me the penny after would be a better title. You should call your novel that. He asked me who my favorite writer was. I said, Henry James, and he made a face and said he figured I had all the wrong models, but maybe I could be a great writer anyway. (laughs) He asked me if I rewrote a lot and said you should never revise, never change anything, not even a word. He regretted all the rewriting he'd done on the town and the city. No one could make him do that again, which was why he always got nowhere with the publishers. He was going to look at my work and show me that what you wrote first was always best. I said, okay, feeling guilty for all that I'd rewritten, but I still loved Henry James. All through this literary conversation, Jack stood swaying above me on the subway, hanging onto the strap. Just before we got off, he leaned down. Our foreheads scraped, our eyeballs loomed up on each other. A funny game where I knew that you weren't supposed to blink no matter what. And um, another one of my favorite passages is when uh, the first big New York Times review comes out for On the Road. And an an expert, she leads this chapter off with an excerpt from that review, um, written by Gilbert Milstein, 1957, September 5th. On the Road is the second novel by Jack Kerouac, and its publication is a historic occasion insofar as the exposure of an authentic work of art is of any great moment in an age in which the attention is fragmented and the sensibilities are blunted by these superlatives of fashion, multiplied a millionfold by the spirit and power of communication. So Joyce was there. Um, There was a newsstand at 66th Street and Broadway right at this entrance to the subway. Just before midnight, we woke up and threw on our clothes in the dark and walked down there still groggy with the heaviness, the blacked-out sleep that comes after making love. According to Viking, there was going to be a review. Maybe it'll be terrific. Who knows, I said. Jack said he was doubtful. Still, we could stop at Donnelly's on the way back and have a beer. We saw the papers come off the truck. The old man at the stand cut the brown cord with a knife, and we bought the one on top of the pile and stood under a street lamp turning pages until we found the Books of the Times section. I felt dizzy reading the first paragraph, like going up on a Ferris wheel too quickly and dangling out over space, laughing and gasping at the same time. Jack was silent. After he'd read the whole thing, he said, It's good, isn't it? (laughs) Yes, I said. It's very, very good. We walked to Donnelly's and spread the paper out on the bar and read the review together, line by line, two or three more times, like students poring over a difficult text for which they're going to be held responsible. Um, The most beautifully, quote, the most beautifully executed, the clearest and most important utterance yet made by the generation Kerouac himself named years ago as Beat and whose principal avatar he is. Just as more than any other novel of the 20s, The Sun Also Rises came to be regarded as the testament of the lost generation, so it seems certain that On the Road will become to be known as that of the Beat generation. It was all very thrilling, but frightening too. I'd read lots of reviews in my two years in publishing. None of them made pronouncements like this about history. What would history demand of Jack? What would a generation expect of its avatar? I remember wishing Allen Ginsberg was around to make sense of all this instead of being in Paris. 
Jack kept shaking his head. He didn't look happy exactly, but strangely puzzled, as if he couldn't figure out why he wasn't happier. We returned to the apartment to go back to sleep. Jack lay down obscure for the last time in his life. The ringing phone woke him the next morning, and he was famous. Couple more minutes here. <clears throat> and so there's a lot about about that in in here, and. Uh, that's just a taste. Um, hardest part of this was deciding what to leave out. Um, so then she's sort of a full-fledged bohemian, a full-fledged beat. Um, bachelor poets, I soon noticed, seem to live by an aesthetic of grime. <laughs> Moving into a ruin, a poet would faithfully maintain it, it as such, filling the air behind a permanently filmed windows with nicotine and accumulating beer bottles so prodigiously that a monument to Miss Rheingold was created too sacred for any trash can. Another approach to tenement life involves denial of the tenement as a tenement and insistence upon it as a charming place once it had been stripped to its core, taken back virtually to its prehistory as a dwelling. Plaster was laboriously scraped off brick that had always been plastered. Windowsills and lintels were sanded raw. Decades of linoleum were ripped up to reveal floorboards underneath, even parquets sometimes perfectly preserved by generations of housewives who, like my mother and Jack's, always put a covering on anything, quote, good. My mother couldn't understand why I'd return to the streets my grandparents had struggled so hard to stay out of. (laughs) At least we never lived on the Lower East Side, she said. We lived near Bronx Park when it was a beautiful area. At least we never lived in the slums. I loved the slums, my slums, the sweet slums of Bohemia and Beatnikdom where sunflowers and morning glories would bloom on fire escapes in the summer and old ladies weighed down by breasts leaned on goose-down pillows and windows, self-appointed guardians of the street. And Tompkins Square, with its onion-topped church, had the grayness of photos of Moscow. Who would not wish to be a scuffler on 2nd Avenue? I bought 7-cent bagels and 10-cent half-sour pickles and sat up till dawn in Rappaport's, where they gave you a whole basket of rolls free, drinking coffee with a jazz trombonist from St. Louis and a poet just arrived from Chicago. I have one more little thing coming. Do I have time? Okay. I didn't spend a great deal of time at home. To this day, I have a triangular scar on my left thumb, reminding me of the night I rushed to my apartment after a day, after a day of being a temporary typist for an insurance company, determined to rush, rush out again after the boring necessity of making dinner. Two pork chops frozen together threatened to hold me up. I hacked away at them, cut some flesh off my thumb in the process, wrapped a dish towel around my wound, and went out anyway, <laughs> bleeding all the way across town to the Cedar Bar. Franz Klein, the famous artist, asked to examine my thumb and lectured me. If I were your father, I'd take you to get stitches. Well, I didn't want to miss anything, I told him. No, of course not, he said. Still holding my wrist, he shook his head with a gleam of mischievous understanding in his eyes. I love that. So, do I still have time? I will just a tiny bit. There's one paragraph that's really nice that um, kind of contrasts the 50s with the 60s, um, since she was more of a, a 50s beat type. The 60s were never quite my time. They seemed anticlimactic for all their fireworks. Some culmination had been short-circuited. I saw hippies replace beatniks, sociologists replace poets, the empty canvas replaced the the Franz Klein. Unenthusiastically, I observed the emergence of, quote, lifestyle, 
the old intensities of blanding out into out into do your own thing, the commandment of a freedom excised of struggle. Ecstasy had become chemical. Forgetfulness could be had by prescription. Revolution was in the wind, but it never came. And if it had, there would have been no room in its orthodoxies for a Kerouac. She's just a really wonderful writer, and um, I highly recommend this this memoir.